views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Yeah, get along. You know, they walk just as easy if you lead them. I like smacking them. Little soul, big world. Eat, sleep, and eat. Many souls. Cattle on the ship, three weeks, she don't go near them. Suddenly we're on Ying and she's got a driving knee to commune with the beast. They weren't cows inside. They were waiting to be, but they forgot. Now they see sky and they remember what they are. It's so bad that what she said makes perfect sense to me. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, December 10th, 2009. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to the show today. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Bronwyn. Everyone's with us today, are they? Bye, bye, bye. Uh, well, we've got a hot show today. Uh, speaking of hot, we're going to continue on our Climate Gate uh, theme in the second half of today's show. And uh, certainly carry on where we left off from last week, because we certainly didn't get to half of the things we wanted to talk about. And uh, by the way, 519-661-3600 is the line you can call if you want to join in on the conversation or email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com with your, with your comments, suggestions, anything you'd like to discuss with us. Now, our first uh, dis- discussion for the first half of the program today, we're going to take you on a trip, uh, I guess we could call it through the Milky Way, only not the one up in the sky, the one here in the province of Ontario and in Canada, or, or we could be talking about our utterly ridiculous milk regulations. And we're going to have a couple of guests joining us today, and uh, in, the, in, in about 15, 20 minutes, we'll be talking to Michael Schmidt, who, if you're aware of it at all, is the farmer who has been charged for selling raw milk in the province of Ontario. But first, we are joined on the line by Karen Selleck, who is with the Canadian Constitution Foundation, and they've got themselves involved in Michael's cause. Is Karen there? Hello, Karen. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Karen. Hi, Karen. Karen, um, I guess before we get going, you're now, last time you were on the show, you weren't with this group, I understand, the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Um, tell us a little bit about that group and why you would be getting involved with uh, with a farmer like um, my, you know Michael Schmidt on this. Okay, yeah, I started working for the Canadian Constitution Foundation full time in July of this year um, after a, a career in another area of law and. Um, what we do is uh, we're a, a, a nonprofit organization that does pro bono work for litigants uh, who are seeking to uphold Canada's rights and freedoms. So um, if there is constitutional issues involved in a case uh, such that um, individuals are being oppressed by the state in some way or other and their what we view as their constitutional right to liberty 
or security of the person is being violated, um, we're interested in that case. Now, we can't get involved in everything. We have to choose our um, cases carefully because we have limited resources, but um, we've uh, become interested in uh, Michael Schmidt's case because we do think that it presents a very interesting um, opportunity to make some points about uh, how the um, case law on liberty and security of the person has gone off track in the courts. Uh, that's an interesting comment. You know, I was, I'm reading, I'm looking at a, uh, a column that you had in the National Post back on January 26th, and it just has a heading on it, Legalize Raw Milk, and it's by yourself. Right. And uh, interesting, um, you compare Michael Schmidt to Toronto Furrier Paul Magder in that article, which I thought was quite interesting. And, um, you know, he, these are people who are just doing an, a legal activity that's normally legal, and all of a sudden it's not legal. Uh, what what's the case? What what makes the two similar? Well, the, the comparison that I was trying to draw was really that it it can it can take sometimes only one person to make a huge difference. And in the in the case of Sunday shopping, I mean, Paul Magder was extremely persistent. He just continued to open his store in violation of the law um, over and over again, despite you know being charged many times and having contempt of court findings made against him. Um, but in the end, he prevailed. That is, in the end, um, the legislature finally said, you know, it really is ridiculous. People really do want stores to be open on Sunday, and they changed the law. And I see Michael Schmidt as doing the same thing for raw milk. That is, in the face of criminal charges or quasi-criminal charges, regulatory charges, he is persisting um, with his campaign to have raw milk legalized and be able to sell to, to consumers. And, um, you know, he's challenging the law. And I think that eventually he will prevail. It's, it has, has already been a long battle for him, and it may be many more years before he does prevail. But I think eventually um, we'll look back on this era as, like, Holy smokes. Do you remember when the law said that you couldn't buy raw milk, you couldn't buy milk directly from a farmer? Um, and we'll say, that was really nutty. It's a good thing we're past that now. Well, when butter was bright yellow. Karen, yeah. this is uh, Robert. I just wondered, um, what uh, defense are you using, or were we using for uh, Michael Schmidt? Under two sections of the Constitution, I understand, equality and liberty? Well, yes, Michael has been handling the case on his own up until now. Um, you know, we, we still aren't on the record for him, and he's expecting his decision in January. And he has argued um, on the basis that uh, the Milk Act and the Health Promotion and Protection Act violate um, Section 7 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. And he's also made an argument under Section 15, which is the equality rights um, uh, section, um, you know, that says all all individuals have to be treated equally under the law. How does that apply in this case? Um, that's a tough argument to make in this case. It's a tough argument for Michael to make, but it would actually be an easier argument, I think, for some um, consumers or would-be consumers of raw milk to make. Uh, Michael has sort of argued it on the basis that um, he, as a farmer, is not prevented from drinking his own raw milk. Um, you know, there's nothing that says that you can't drink the stuff if you produce it, if you own the cow. It says that you can't sell it or distribute it or offer it for sale and so on. You can't, can't even give it away. Um, but you can drink it yourself. So why is there a difference between um, farmers and non-farmers? That, well, was, that was the argument that he made. Um, I think that the stronger argument for consumers will be there are some individuals who can't tolerate pasteurized milk. That is, um, because pasteurization destroys the enzymes in it that allow you to deal with with some of the contents of milk, those people can't digest it, but they can digest 
raw milk because it still has all those enzymes in it. So some people, for health reasons, um, do much better drinking uh, raw milk than they do drinking pasteurized milk. And that's the kind of thing um, where, uh, you know, that's, a, that's an inherent characteristic of those individuals that probably can't be changed. So it's the kind of thing where they might be able to make an argument that they're being discriminated against by this law that doesn't allow them to consume dairy products um, when other people can consume dairy products. Um, you know, Karen, when I was looking at the, this case, it didn't seem to me to be about milk, raw milk, pasteurized milk at all. That wasn't even an element of this case because everything I read said it's perfectly okay to have your own cow own it and drink raw milk from it that's perfectly okay what's not legal is to sell it to someone else again it's like a prostitution law for heaven's sakes you know you can have free sex but you can't sell it and it's just a, it's a restriction of a market and it's so obvious here's a guy who's been in business for years and years decades i understand never had a health problem never had an issue never had a dissatisfied customer in that regard and yet one day the government walks in onto his farm and treats him essentially like a criminal isn't that what the whole case is really about? Well, um, you know, they, they justify the requirement for pasteurization on the basis of health, but I really think that there are some other justifications that are lurking in the background. The, the reason that, that a lot of people don't want to see this boat rocked is, um, uh, first of all, pasteurization extends the shelf life of milk. So by killing some of the beneficial bacteria that would otherwise, you know, continue to be active in the milk, um, they, they prevent it from souring as quickly. So, you know, there's a lot of milk producers that, uh, that are happy with extending the shelf life because... Um, but how, 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 is any of that, how is any of that relevant to his right to sell it? I mean, you could be talking about any food. Some meats keep longer in the fridge, some yep. keep shorter. Uh, eggs could be a problem. Anything can be a problem if you don't know what the heck you're doing. Yeah, but the main thing that's really that's really driving this, of course, is is the fear that uh, the fear of the dairy farmers of Ontario. That is the fear of milk quota owners that allowing um, private sales between uh, cons- between farmers and consumers is going to disrupt the marketing board system. That's, I think, the the real driving force behind the uh, the legalization of raw milk. Uh, I agree with you. I think that's it's all about monopoly and, and yep. maintaining a monopoly, and it seems to be a recurring theme with everything the government. Does. Touches. Uh, we have the same problem here in the city of London right now. You might not know, but our transit people are all on strike, and that's all over government monopoly, namely the, the LTC bus system. But uh, it's another issue for us to worry about. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you see the case going? Is, is this where, what, where? Where is everything at right now? Okay, his decision on the quasi-criminal charges will be handed down on January twenty-first, twenty ten. And uh, at the same time, you know, he'll be found either guilty or not guilty. And at the same time, the court will uh, release its decision on the criminal, or rather the constitutional issues that were challenged. And um, we'll take it from there. Depending on what the decision is, uh, that will have to dictate how we proceed from that point. Um, it may be that if, if he's acquitted, um, you know, Michael certainly will be happy with that. But uh, at that point, the Crown may say, you know, uh, we want to appeal that. Or, you know, if there is um, a decision that, that strikes down the legislation that's unconstitutional, the uh, Attorney General's office will probably want to appeal that. So um, I suspect that whichever way the decision comes down, this case is not over yet. That is, it's going to go to at least one and probably two uh, additional levels of court before, it's, uh, before we've heard the last of it. So, so on January 21st, there's a decision coming down on Michael, and he's going to be guilty or not guilty 
of what exactly? (laughs) I haven't quite got my thumb on that yet. Violating Section 18, primarily Section 18, there's several sections, but it's primarily Section 18 of the Health Protection Protection Promotion Act. Um, It says that you can't sell or offer to sell or distribute uh, milk that hasn't been pasteurized or sterilized in a plant licensed by the government. If that is a legitimate health concern, then why does the same health department allow you and I as private individuals owning our own cows to drink this poison milk? Aren't they absconding their, 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 I mean, it should be banned for everyone if they're going to be consistent. Yeah, yeah, that's, and that's certainly one of the arguments that, that has been made. Are they willing to go that way? You know, maybe we could have a monopoly on cows and I have a license to own a cow. I can see that coming. <laughs> Am I being facetious? I think so. <laughs> well, Karen, uh, we certainly wish you luck on this whole uh, issue, and, and we, we're, we're going to be talking to Michael shortly, so I hope you can listen in, to, in on that. And um, thank you for joining us today. Oh, you're very welcome, Bob. Thanks very much. Okay. Thanks, Karen. Great, bye-bye. What did you think of that, Robert? Well, I think it's just um, yet another example of uh, regulation that um, is protecting a market that perhaps at one point in time around the turn of the century may have been useful, but by today's standards, it's just an anachronism. uh, The technology is there to have safe raw milk, and um, we need the freedom of choice to be able to choose raw milk or pasteurized. Yeah, yeah. what do you mean by protecting a market? Like, when when would that have been a good time? Well, when you get a a farmer like uh, Michael... Uh, daring to get into another avenue of milk distribution without being uh, licensed by the government or paying their fees, then that's just another part of the whole big milk industry, which, by the way, in this country is so regulated and so um, protected by the state that it just sends shivers up the spine of the people who are, have vested interest in making sure that nobody rocks the boat. Well, as soon as I even hear the word quota, I know we're in trouble and the, and the whole thing stinks from the word go. We're going to take a quick break now. And when we come back after this break, with a bit of luck, we'll have Michael Schmidt on the phone to talk to us about his actual problems that he's having in his personal life over this. Hey, you want to make a bit of money? You should do what I did, get into farming. See this? I got this, selling corn. Comes out of the f***ing ground. I couldn't believe it. You see that? It's made of chicken. It's actually made of chicken. You kill it, you got free chicken. You can sell it to people. Or don't kill it. Can eggs come out of their arses? You know, sheep. Bit woolly. It's wool! Pull it off, sell it. It grows back again. You cannot lose. Brilliant. Don't even need an alarm clock. <sighs> Unbelievable. It's only five in the morning, and I'm right where I work. And while the other poor sod's struggling in on the tube, I'm going to go and get some milk out of a cow. Who's a jammy bastard? Look at all this milk. I'm going to make a f***ing fortune. 
name is Craig. I was born on a farm. It's a real drag to move from the country to the city and find out your neighbors aren't going to help you build your garage for beer. <laughs> Used to sneak out to the barn at night and drink milk straight from the cow. <laughs> Get a glass, my mom would say. No chance. And we're back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. We're having a little bit of problem connecting with Michael at the moment, but we hope to make that connection very shortly. Got a lot of information on him here. Have you seen some of this stuff, Robert? All these newspaper Yeah, you've got some clippings going all the way back to January of this year um, about Michael's problems. I understand that from his... From his website. Well, actually, well, let's go back to, to Michael since he's on the... Uh, okay, we've got him on the line now. I guess we got that through there. Michael, are you there? I'm here, yes. Oh, welcome to the show. We thought we were going to lose you there and drowning in a whole puddle of milk there or something. No, no, no. no. It's more more snow than milk here. Yeah, well, <laughs> have, you, uh, have you heard the show thus far at all? Do you know what? I, ca- I couldn't get it working on my computer, so I didn't hear okay, anything. Well, well we, just had, we just had Karen on explaining some of your uh, situation yeah. before the courts. And but one of the things I found interesting, um, it, I, I've got an article here dating back to, uh, I think this says January 26th, if I can read it right, of this year. And it refers to a 2006 police raid on your farm. Criminal charges, armed police raid. They actually came to your farm, armed police? Yeah, it was actually it was actually the MNR Ministry of Natural Resources. Uh, they are the uh, the I, I call it the exec the, the army which executes you know um, orders uh, from the Ministry of Health and Ministry of uh, Agriculture and Food. And uh, so they came, but they the the police themselves they blocked off the farm and then these armed officers they basically raided the farm. And they took your equipment, uh, Michael. Yeah, they took the equipment and they took computers and uh, office files um, and products. So how much of your assets have you lost to the, uh, the Well, the, uh, the, the interesting thing is that I was, I was battling then for the, for the next uh, one and a half years, and finally I got my equipment back. I got it all back. Oh, you did? Was that in response to the petition that I saw online? No, that wa- no it was actually that I went to simply to court, and uh, I looked at the... At the uh, what do you call that uh, regulations in respect to what rights they have to keep that equipment if they cannot produce um, if they don't want to use it as evidence at trial then they have no right to keep it they only can keep it then for three months and it took over a year to finally find a judge who said well yeah there's no reason why it shouldn't be returned and so they returned it part of your petition was um, to allow yourself to carry on your service to the cow shareholders to sell That's their own right. milk. That was that was the original pressure we put on because I went I went a day after the trial I went on the hunger strike and then we we moved even further with a petition to ask that they return the equipment that everything can be dealt with in court with properly until you know it's proven either that I'm guilty or not guilty but until that time there should be no reason why the equipment shouldn't be back and I shouldn't keep going producing the product for our cow shareholders. So you are actually still, um, the uh, shareholders of the cows are still getting their milk? Well, the interesting thing is that uh, at uh, the next day, we, we were back, basically back in business and haven't stopped since then. Oh, very good. Now, did, were, did you expect that raid? Was there any kind of sign well, that it was coming? Well, it is. It, I was... I, 
I mean, I had this battle in 1994, and the methods they used at that time were indicated that if they come back again, they will they they come with heavier guns. So basically what I did is I, over the last 12 years, and that's pretty remarkable, I mean, not to pat on my shoulder, but what we did is we always had video cameras ready, loaded, uh, and battery charged, and it took them 12 years or 11 and a half years uh, to come back, and this time in full force, but luckily we basically uh, videotaped the entire, you know, bizarre raid on a, on a, just on a, I would say, rather small dairy farm. Don't you think, Michael, that the fact that they spent 12 <laughs> years thinking about coming back, doesn't that sort of suggest maybe that you're, what you're doing isn't necessarily that dangerous? Well, that is for sure the case. They knew it because I had informed the ministry in 1995 that I will, that I will continue with my operation and uh, that we do it on the base of Cowshare. And uh, I invited them to actually be part of... Uh, of a research we could do together with our cowshare members and they just you know said no we're not interested in that and uh, and but at the same time i told them that even when they're not interested i do it myself and just continue and uh, they haven't you know they haven't shown up for 12 years now you, you keep you use the term cowshare um to me this is a complication that seems to almost take you right around the law, and I still don't know how they can get you, given that um, it's not illegal to drink the milk from your own cow. And if all the people involved in your um, group have, quote, shares, that they've you know, purchased a piece of a cow, so to speak, how is it they can't drink the milk from their own cow? Or am I not looking at that the right way? Uh, can you just? I I lost you just uh, in the last the last sentence. I lost. Well, well, I was just saying that you know if this is a cow share scheme of some sort, everybody sort of owns the cows together, right, in a collective. Yeah. Yeah. So how is it they're not allowed to drink the, the milk from their own cows? Well, that that is really the issue before the courts. I mean that that is part of our argument. Uh, our argument we using um, that in fact they they're drinking their own milk. However, they try to they try to bulldoze us into into how you call it submission um that we do not don't do not use that because there is distribution is included that you're not allowed to distribute it and in order to get it to the cow shareholders there is a you know there, there's certainly the part that you have to deliver the product there but um it is it is an iffy issue and and uh, in regard to karen selick uh joining the battle with the canadian constitution foundation it it becomes more and more an issue of basic principles if people still have the right to actually choose what they put in their body and and when you look it it is a north american phenomena what's going on you know these rates go go on in in the states repeatedly the fda is targeting very specifically uh you know farms and uh doing basically the same thing that did here so it is a very strange, strange, uh, how shall I call it, war regarding food rights. I, I'm curious, you know, I, I myself have been in, involved in many issues in, in, in this province across the country on issues very similar to yours. Yeah. And it's been my experience that people like yourself are extraordinarily, extraordinarily rare. 
where do you guys come from? Where can I find more people who actually care about principle and would actually fight on a principle? Because obviously, um, you know, the people that I've run into who always fight cases on principle, they're not doing it for the money. And, and, and usually the public doesn't get that message. They just don't understand that anybody uh, would do that unless it was strictly financially driven. Um, so what is it that drives Michael Schmidt? Is Are you just uh, a contrary like myself? Or what's no. the story? No, I think maybe it has a little bit to do with my history that I'm coming from, um, I'm originally from Germany, and I have gone through post-war, uh, grew up during post-war, have realized, you know, what can go wrong if people don't speak up or don't have the courage to stand up. And, you know, I talk to my parents a lot about, you know, this time when, you know, when when the, when they had the problem with, uh, with, uh, Nazis in Germany, and I got a pretty good understanding of what it means to, you know, to first of all be scared and not standing up when you still have a chance to stand up. And that is why I'm highly sensitive to, to this increased infringement of liberties we have here in this country, and I think it's even, even worse in the U.S., but that we, you know, that now it is, we now, there's an announcement from the government, we now allow to have, you know, uh, homemade wine can be sold at the farmer's market. We allow it to do that. We allow it to drive there and we allow it to do that. And it should be exactly the other way around, that that, that the government should protect our liberties instead granting us liberties which are already entrenched in the charter itself i agree you know i agree entirely i think the purpose of government is to protect our freedom of choice and not to restrict it unfortunately uh all the political parties operate on completely opposite political principles since that's all they've got to to sell us is some restriction on liberty we've certainly seen it under this government do you see any political hope for the future well, it's a, that's a really good question. And first of all, I think people need to get involved in the political process. That there is no way around it. And if if you look at it from a career point of view, I mean, you you mentioned it before. This is not an issue for us because we're making we're making we're becoming rich on this raw milk issue. No, for me, it was that I'm talking to so many individuals and people who who need, for example, in our case, the raw milk for, the, for their own health. And they want to make the decision, and they cannot, they do not have the right to make a decision that they have this raw milk, okay? So we're getting back to the principle of it, that I could have had a much easier life in the last 15 years than constantly being confronted, confronted with that battle. But at the same time, I see the value that even if it's a few people who have the courage to stand up, that this could ignite, actually, you know, the courage within other people to say, yes, what if we as people just say no? What can they do? Sure, they start beating down a few people at the beginning, but there is sooner or later, there has to be kind of a reversal of that attitude, you know, that we have to control every detail of our lives here, and apply restrictions there and restrictions there and regulations there. It's that waking up to that we actually more enslaved here than, for example, the people in Germany during during the 40s. 
Isn't that interesting? Robert and I have been literally talking about that very theme and, and warning that, you know, the Canada of today is almost the Germany that this country sent soldiers to fight in the last war. Yes. And, uh, and people just don't see it coming, as neither did the Germans. And it's interesting that you and I have a similar background in that regard. I don't know if that's got anything to do with it. Yeah. Um, Michael, I really want to thank you for joining us today. Um, I want you to know that we all regard you as, as a fighter for liberty. It, it, I don't even drink milk that much, and yet I know that your cause affects my personal individual liberties and rights. And I think everyone who just heard what you had to say should take that to heart, and I'm so glad you got a chance to say it today on the show. Thank you so much, Robert. Thanks for joining us. Thank okay, you, Michael. Bye-bye. Wasn't that something, Robert? It is indeed. This is rare individuals. Um, you know, you've got uh, Mark Emery, you've got Morgan Dollar, you've got um, Paul Magder, now we have Michael Schmidt. Yeah, and it's inter- interesting. I've been involved with this, a few of them along the way as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, they all had the same story, some just outrageous injustice, always over somebody pulling a monopoly and using some other phoning excuse to justify it. Usually health. Health is the latest fascism that we're facing in this country. You can justify just about anything on health. You know, even green policies, which, by the way, is what we're going to be talking about after this break, because we are going to return to the climate gate story because, boy, we didn't even get to anything we wanted to talk about last week. So let's take a quick break. And after these words from our very important messages and sponsors, we will return. Oh, hi, Mr. Kimball. Hello, Em. You working for Mr. Douglas? Yes, sir. How's it going? Oh, it's a million laughs. (laughs) Isn't there something you could do? I could milk a cow. Oh, you bought a cow? Yeah, Mr. Haney sold him Eleanor. Eleanor? (laughs) Eleanor? Yes. (laughs) You see what I mean by a million laughs? (laughs) Uh, Would you like to look at the farm? Uh, the farm? Please. All right. Yes, of course, Mr. Douglas. Eleanor. <laughs> if you recall, uh, during the Bush administration, there were a lot of crazy conspiracy theories emanating from the left. The government is tapping our phones and running secret Eastern European prisons all to fatten the pockets of Halliburton. (laughs) Were those things true? Of course not. Well, individually, yes. Each item in that sentence is technically true. Yes, our phones were tapped and there were secret prisons and Halliburton did receive uh, a load of money. But when you put it all together in one sentence, it makes it sound slightly more dystopian than perhaps was warranted. Although, to be fair to the crazy conspiracy theorists, did pile up fast. All right. But now, we've got a different president, clean slate, the left is in control, and it's the right's turn to uncover evidence of the nefarious plots of powerfully privileged plutocrats. A hacker in England got hold of emails between leading scientists, which skeptics say show a clear effort to raise fears about global warming and hide evidence against it. No, for sake. (laughs) Poor Al Gore. Global warming completely debunked. 
via the very internet you invented. Oh! Oh, the irony! The irony! And welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Robert Vaughn, joined with Bob Metz, and you can join the conversation at 519-661-3600 or listen online at chrwradio.com. By the way, you can also send us an email at, www, at uh, sorry, just right, chrw at gmail.com. Our website, www.justrightmedia.org. The age of the internet, eh? Yeah, there's <laughs> so many them. ways to contact us now. Uh, thank God for Al Gore eh, and, the in- and the internet. Yes. Isn't that great? Irony of ironies, eh? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yes, this, this climate change thing and the climate gate issue and the whole global warming thing just will not go away. It'll be here for a long, long time, Bob, years and years and years. And um, just going through the papers in the last couple of weeks, or actually since just we last talked on the climate gate, I've come up with a couple of things I'd like to get across on today's show that I didn't get um, to talk about last week. First of all, is um, the latest from the climate change religion has poor African countries like uh, Burkina Faso and the Sudan complaining that preliminary negotiations are sidelining sidelining the third world and leaving the decision making up to the industrial world regarding the climate change. Well, if it is the case that these third world countries only produce about two percent of the world's anthropogenic CO2, it seems only reasonable, Bob, that. The industrialized countries of the world, those countries who both contribute the most man-made CO2 and have the most to lose economically by any agreement reached in Copenhagen, they should be the ones making the decisions. That only stands to reason. You think? Yeah. Or at least they shouldn't be entitled to more than 2% of the say. (laughs) (laughs) Proportional say. Proportional representation. (laughs) Hey, isn't that how it works? Just look at it. Africa has no ice to melt. There are no polar bears in the Sudan. Burkina Faso has no coastal cities that would be flooded considering that it's a landlocked country. And since there is no evidence, there is actually evidence, Bob, to show that ice ages harm Africa more than warmer periods. Really? I just saw that on a show last night. Um, well, it's called Man it on Earth. It stands to reason, you know, cold is bad, warm is good. Well, it Why actually, are we even, go- it <laughs> generally turn- speaking, for it turns life? Out, it turns out having to do with the water. During the ice ages, it per- turns out that in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, it was hyper-arid during the ice ages. It just dried just right up. Dry, As a yeah. matter of fact, 160,000 years ago, during a major ice age, there was it, only 10,000 human beings left on the planet because of that ice age, and they were in Ethiopia of all places. Well, to present-day Ethiopia. Oh, and, by the uh, way, that's where Cory Cory Morningstar says uh, <laughs> things are really doing well because they don't use nearly the amount of carbon emissions. The irony of it yeah, all. The <laughs> irony of it all. Mm-hmm. So anyway. It's, I just find it very interesting that uh, the African uh, nations would argue that uh, they need more say at uh, Copenhagen considering their situation. And it sort of begs the question, what could it be that these poor third world countries could gain from controlling Copenhagen negotiations? One, since they have no significant emissions to cap, they will take great pleasure in telling the industrialized world to cap their emissions. This gives them power. Two, if well, the they think indu- it does. 
I don't agree it does, but I, th I think they think it does. Perceived power, at least. Yeah. If you take away the power of production of the most powerful nations who you're trading with and give you cheap goods, that's not hurt. That's not helping you. That's just anti-power. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly isn't it? Right. Yeah. Power of Genghis Khan. That's right. And two, if the industrialized world were seen as the CO2 aggressors and the third world victims, then the industrial world could be shamed into subsidizing the third world to mitigate the imagined changes that climate change is supposed to bring. This gives them money. And that is precisely what the climate change debate is all about, Bob. Money and power, nothing else. And I'll quote you today from Laurie Goldstein, in today's um, London Free Press. His article today, Copenhagen Climate Talks, a major mess. He actually quotes Stephen Harper saying, and I quote, a socialist regime, a, 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 Kyoto is a socialist scheme to well, suck money out of wealth-producing producing nations that will not even reduce greenhouse gases. And that's very, that's all true, and Harper said it before, and yet, isn't it funny the Alice in Wonderland world politicians slip into as soon as they go from their real-life points of view, reality, and they walk into politics, and all of a sudden the whole world's unreal, and they carry about on their business as though everything they believed in and know to be true doesn't it's even if, exist. It's as if Stephen Harper just saw the polls and says, oh, well, that's not a very popular opinion, even though it's true, let's just go with the whole climate gate thing, and, or climate change thing, and say that it is... Uh, not all about money and power and that it is going to be global warming. So, I mean... Of course, conservatives would argue he's just playing a game of perception that, uh, you know, when he gets his majority government, then he'll behave like a, a conservative. How about behaving principled <laughs> and, say, and standing true to what you actually believe in? But I can't, uh, don't think we're going to expect no. that from Mr. Harper. Another article that I found very interesting just recently, Bob, was... Um, it was in the Globe and Mail yesterday, as a matter of fact. One participant to Copenhagen, a Mr. Kim Nagoyan, actually pedaled his bicycle 18,000 kilometers to travel to the talks from his home in Brisbane, Australia. My hat goes off oh. to him, Bob. How he, did he do that over the ocean? That's what I was going to suggest. <laughs> now, if he just rode his bike, my hat goes off to him. But, of course, it depends. If, now, if he crossed Bronwyn the ocean... Can, can explain that one for us. Eh? <laughs> you got a bike like that? <laughs> if he crossed the ocean with a you sail... Know. No. If he crossed the ocean with a sailboat, okay, well and good. But if he used petrol, I, you know, I take my, I put my hat back on. Sure. <laughs> He's the first climate change zealot to actually put his money where his mouth is if he didn't cross the ocean other than by sail. Every single other one of the participants, as well as every single adherent to the climate change religion, are hypocrites. If they really believe that the use of petroleum caused global warming and is destroying the planet... They would forego all forms of fossil fuel transportation. They would never buy another plastic product ever again, as plastic is derived from petroleum. They should never walk on a paved road again, since asphalt is made from crude oil. In fact, if these hypocrites actually practice what they preached, they could probably not survive anywhere but a log cabin in the woods. What do you think the chances are that <laughs> they'd be true adherents to the religion and practice what they preach, Bob? Uh, pretty low. Uh, low, low probabilities, let's put it that way. Uh, you know, since the whole um, the whole climate gate gate <laughs> scandal <laughs> broke last week, if you don't know what that's about, that was in last week's show. Look at all the letters to the editor that I've got here, just from the free press, and all about the the climate gate 
quote, hoax. And, and you know, you get it. Here's an opinion that I, I run into frequently. Emails don't prove global warming is a hoax. And this is letter writer Craig Thibodeau from Springfield who writes, it's time for all the climate change denialists to stop pretending that the hacked emails from a few scientists have proven global warming to be a hoax. They have not. If global warming is nothing but a hoax, Quote, somebody ought to tell the polar ice caps that they're free to stop melting, end quote, which he got a quote from the Washington Post. Now, mind you, there is some validity to what he says. Not that it doesn't necessarily prove it's a hoax, but there's a huge body of evidence on both sides. And certainly a couple of emails by just a few, even though prominent, um, climatologists are not going to totally uh, change the debate. So, But it certainly goes uh, on the side of the uh, climate well, deniers. You know, but I think this this writer completely misses the whole debate. The debate is not about global warming or not global warming. It's about are we doing it with our SUVs and stuff like that, which he hasn't even addressed. Well, not even that, Bob. And, and global warming that. is a fact because we get it all the time. In fact, um, as uh, Lawrence Solomon has said, who we're going to be hearing from very shortly, by the way, um, you know, most of the people who are, quote, the deniers don't deny global warming. In fact, they insist that global warming has been going on for thousands of years, right? It's not that they're denying it. They're just saying that man as a factor, as a significant factor, as even a measurable factor, is non-existent in that factor. And, and you know, I remember back in the 80s when London declared itself to be a nuclear-free zone, and I got involved in a project on um, literally nuclear bombs, because we were all afraid we were going to get bombed with the Cold War and all that stuff. And I discovered, much to my amazement, and this was largely due to a lot of the research done by Mark Emery, too, and we even worked with the, the defense uh, organizations here in Canada, that you know people think nuclear bombs would destroy the world, and they wouldn't. You could blow up every bomb that man has ever created, and the world would probably be recovered in a year, although you wouldn't want to be near any of the epicenters. But the belief that it, it's, uh, such a war would not be survive, survivable is nonsense. Um, we did research. In fact, if a bomb, two, two megaton hit downtown, you'd be okay in White Oaks if you were in your basement. And most people wouldn't believe that for a minute. They don't understand that the world can really take a lot of battering. And one volcano, for example, releases more energy than a bunch of nuclear weapons. And we had one go off in North America. The Trade Center, when it came down, was the equivalent of a nuclear weapons energy being released. Is that right? That's correct. And so... Uh, um, the belief that, you know, the little bit that we can do with our CO2, which is a small fraction of a small fraction of a small fraction of the atmosphere, and, and to just understand how much CO2 is, is poured into our atmosphere just from one tiny geyser underneath the Pacific Ocean in a half an hour would be ten times more than mankind can produce in ten centuries. You know, it's this whole debate. It's so absurd. And to say nothing of the fact that CO2 is not even the boogaboo that everybody says it is. And here we got all these politicians sitting in Copenhagen talking about uh, angels on the head of a pin. Well, what I'd like to see is the debate turn around to actually what the entire issue is, for me at least, and that is what is the role of government in all of this? Sure, right. you can have scientists talk one we'll way talk or the about, other. We'll talk about that right after this break, the role of government. Good good place to go. Right now we're going to be hearing from a, uh, a broadcast from CTV uh, AM. I think this was just this past Monday or so. And this is actually probably one of the most famous people on, of, uh, in terms of global warming deniers, and that's Lawrence Solomon, whose series in the National Post has become infamous, and he has introduced the world to many of the world scientists 
who aren't being allowed into the debate because of all the censorship and things that are going on within the, uh, you know, the officialdom, let's put it that way. So here's Lawrence Solomon, and after we come back, we'll continue the conversation. Delegates from around the world are meeting for a second day in Copenhagen, hoping to tackle the issue of global warming. The goal is a new climate change agreement, but a recent email scandal is taking center stage. More than 1,000 private emails hacked at British universities suggest a need to rig scientific data in order to boost the argument that climate change is human-driven. Here to explain what is now known as ClimateGate is Lawrence Solomon, who has written a book called The Deniers. Thank you for coming in to talk about this. Um, and as I understand it, these, the, the leaked emails that we've been talking about, some of which are several years old, but some of the data contained from some of those scientists are, is going to be used in Copenhagen. Well, yes, and if the, the data that, that came out has been used by the United Nations Panel on Climate Change for many years. That's, uh, they form the basis for why we, why we believe that dangerous uh, global warming has been occurring. And now it's clear that that, that data has been false. And as you say, the, the scientists implicated in ClimateGate, they're behind the, 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 the documents before the, uh, the people assembling at Copenhagen. So the, the data is all very much in doubt. Well, is it clear? I mean, really? Because some, it's only some emails, and there's, not, there's no out-and-out -out denial, say. It's, it's in terms of its research and conclusions saying that this is, you know, um, not clear, in fact, and, and, and is peripatetic at best. Like, it's just all over the place. It's absolutely clear that the data uh, is discredited. Be, um, because it's discredited, we have two universities holding um, investigations. We have the United Nations Panel on Climate Change itself holding an investigation. And we have the, the UK Met Office. This is the government's meteorological office, which has been providing the United Nations with the, the, the most important of its weather data. It has said, we cannot trust this data anymore. We have to have an investigation. We're going to call a timeout for three years. During those three years, we're going to re-examine all the data going back 150 years so that we can be confident at the end of the three-year period that we're dealing with, with real data and not fabricated data. Actually, the real story is not quite that sensational. Basically, emails stolen from scientists at one of the leading study centers for global warming show them discussing their work a bit, uh, how do I put this, casually. He wrote, the fact is we can't account for the lack of warming at the moment, and it is a travesty that we can't. I've just completed Mike's nature trick of adding in the real temps to each series for the last 20 years, i.e. from 1981 onwards, and from 1961 for Keith's to hide the decline. <laughs> See, it's nothing. <laughs> he, he was just using a trick to hide the decline. <laughs> it's just scientists speak for using a standard statistical technique, recalibrating data in order to trick you <laughs> into not knowing about the decline. But here's what's great about science. In disagreement, we go back and look at the raw data. University scientists say raw data from the 1980s was thrown out. Go oh, for sake. <laughs> Why would you throw out 
raw data from the 80s. I still have penthouses from the 70s. <laughs> Laminated. What did you keep? The scientists say they kept something called value-added data. <laughs> value-added data? What is that? Numbers fortified with art? Truth plus? Now with lemon? That's, uh, of course, John Stewart from um, The Daily Show on ClimateGate. And um, there you go, you know. What do you think, Robert? <laughs> and people still don't think, still think this whole thing is for real. Well, I'm but, just interested, per, you know, personally about what the government's role is in all of this, each individual government, because we have here a scientific debate on one hand, we have a uh, political debate on the other with uh, socialists trying to get... Uh, uh, the money from the industrialized country, countries uh, redistributed across the world for no good reason other than to just steal the money out of our pockets, give it to uh, other countries, and not reducing greenhouse gases, by the way, in the process, just giving them the money. Um, so what is the role of the Canadian government is what my interest is, and I think that that's always been to protect our individual choices, to protect our economy. But we live in a global global economy now, Roberts. How can you be talking about the Canadian government independent of all the rest? Because it's well, working in cahoots with all of them. Because can you imagine, all the rest of the other countries are our competitors. Isn't it in their, their best interest to make sure that our economy is just squashed? Can you just think of what the Chinese... No, of course it isn't. The Chinese are saying, you know, let's, oh yeah, let's um, reduce glo uh, global warming gases now just to protect the environment. I have no... Uh, allusions to what the Chinese are thinking is that they just want to reduce the American, the Canadian, the westernized world's economy so that their economy shoots to the top. So, so in other words, they all believe in creating a fixed pie so there's less of it to go around for all of us so we can all be scrambling and get on, you know, rationing instead of production and, and wealth. And, and, and I can't believe any country would think that way. It just sounds insane to me. But that's the way of the world, Bob. You know, um, it's funny that uh, Lori Goldstein here in a debate with Elizabeth May in the Free Press on December 7th argues it's not an environmental conference, and it's an economic mugging. That it's not, it's not about saving the planet, it's about making you poorer. That the solutions are guaranteed to fail, all the solutions that they're talking about. It's for. also about the fact that governments cannot produce the energy required for a, a, a productive nation like our own. You remember the blackouts back uh, a few years ago. That should have been the writing on the wall right there. It says, okay, so now we can't produce the energy needed for this society. What are we going to do? Well, we've got to shame people into using less. That's exactly the, the approach. Now, the thing to me is, with this whole global warming issue, even if everything the religionists and the, and the global warming religion believed in was true. Even if it was true that CO2 is going to raise the average temperature of the Earth 0 0.9 <laughs> degrees over 200 years, whatever they're saying, it's all make-believe, and they don't know, they can't possibly know. But let's assume it's all true. <clears throat> I don't see government having to do anything, ever. Correct. It's not even in the. It's not even on the mandate to do anything about the weather, or about climate. Governments have a responsibility to do things about pollution, which CO two is not, and as a consequence, and only in regards to that pollution over their own property, so to speak, the, the governed lands. Yes. And it, in terms of private owners, it's up to owners to to. Uh, uh, look after their own pollution and make sure that they take care of it. And if someone pollutes their property, they should have the right to sue. And, you know, it, it got me thinking about the very term pollution. I'm still thinking this through. But, you know, pollution, 
is not merely something that is toxic. Every time you hear somebody say, oh, you know, this particle of this chemical is toxic, therefore it's pollution. No, it's not. Just because something's toxic doesn't make it pollution. Pollution occurs when you have, and, and pollution can occur with non-toxic substances. It can occur with harmless substances. Well, of course. You could have pollution. Of course. Because pollution occurs in a small area when you have too much of something that the normal ecology, the, the, the environment can no longer function in the way it does. And animals pollute as well. It's one of the first things you learn on a nature show is that the, uh, they have these little uh, crab things under the ocean that I saw, and they live on the reefs, and, and their shells pollute huge areas, literally po- pollute the water because it's so thick. Beavers are known to do the same thing, and a large part of what our wildlife and resource people do is clean up some of the pollution created by them. Think of the zebra mussels in the Great Lakes. Same thing, and it's all a matter of concentration, and how much is concentration and how much is not. Oxygen, the stuff we breathe, can be a pollutant. If that's all you've got in the room and nothing else to mix with it, you wouldn't last very long. And so pollution, and it's like the fellow who called us on the show last week, you know, he said he was behind the bus. Uh, getting all those pollutants. Well, yeah, right behind that bus, it's polluted <laughs> in, in those in that three-foot square area. But on the planet, that bus is contributing virtually nothing to global warming or the pollution or anything like that. It doesn't work that way. You can't stick your head up the, the tailpipe of a car and make a case for you know, global <laughs> warming, which is literally the, the, the type of thinking you're seeing out there, don't you think? I don't, see, I don't think they see the big picture. You're right about that. But I think we have to go back to Mr. Kim Nagoyan from uh, Brisbane, Australia. And the purpose of government basically is to stay out of the way. But if... Like Mr. Nagoyan, you think that global warming is destroying the planet, which is fine. You can have your belief, your religious beliefs about that. Keep them to yourself, but act for on your own beliefs. If you think you're polluting the, the world, don't drive a car. Don't take the bus. It's using petroleum. Don't buy plastics. Those kinds of things. Act for yourself. Don't demand government force uh, the rest of us um, to destroy the economy just because of your false beliefs that the world is going to die from uh, carbon dioxide. Well, you know, <laughs> maybe I'll go a step further. I don't know that I'd be encouraging... Can you go further than that? Well, no, I don't <laughs> think I'd be encouraging anybody to practice their false beliefs. Well, you're uh, right about you know, that. Yeah, you know, in a yeah. sense, I'd be saying, hey, crank up that. As long as it's benign. <laughs> you know, that's exactly it. You don't have to worry about harming the planet, and it scares the heck out of me what we're doing to our kids in the schools. Uh, did you see here on the weekend they're having this vigil in London, I guess tomorrow night? Candlelight uh, vigil. Candlelight Burning vigil. oxygen again. Yeah, they're going to be burning <laughs> oxygen in downtown London or somewhere here, and... They're, and, and um, uh, apparently, uh, they're talking about uh, the, the 350. This is their... Yes, 350, you know, 350 parts, parts per million. Parts per million. Dr. Gordon McBean, professor at UWO, who shared in the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007 to the IPCC, is going to be speaking there. And I heard him on a radio show earlier last week, and I'll have to comment on him. Boy, he was wrong about 100% of the things that he said. And Ross McKittrick, who came on after him, corrected him on every single point. It was embarrassing, utterly embarrassing. This is one of the people that is paid for by tax dollars to basically throw crap at us and, and, and talk us out of our money is essentially what it's all about. He said nothing that, that uh, was scientifically supportable and constantly just berates people who disagree with him. That's all he does. Typical of the left. And, and it's amazing, you know, um, last week we heard um, Lord Christopher Monckton describe people like Al Gore 
totally not nice person. You hear that from so many people. And uh, I don't know if that intolerance on the part of the left is, is, is a character flaw or just part of the, the dogma. I don't know. But that's something we'll have to investigate on a later show because, Robert, look at that time. We're right out of time. We've got to get out of here, and we hope that everyone's going to join us again next week as we return and on our journey in the right direction. So until then, you know what to do. Be right, act right, stay right, and think right. And we'll see you next week. Take care. Fade into color and color into black and white Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright If you care about an issue and want to make it your life's work, don't cut corners! It's disheartening for people inclined towards the scientific method, and it's catnip to these guys who are going to end up celebrating tonight drunk, roaming the Arctic Circle trying to skull polar bears. <laughs> which are quickly disappearing because of rising oceans caused now, apparently, by God's tears. <laughs> In other news...